Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners from around the world to explore Israel through ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Padesh in California, and I'm joined with my very talkative co-host, Liz Feldstern. Liz, I have to start by just saying we're in year, we're in year, we're in day 77 of the war uh, in Israel. I just don't know how, I can't even imagine how you and others in Israel are managing through this. I mean, the trauma of what we hear on a daily basis of the fallen soldiers, of the situation with the hostages, and last week with the very, very challenging and awful um, shooting of uh, three hostages by the Israeli army. I hate to ask the question, but what what is daily life like now in Israel? Well, I don't think you should hate to ask the question, right? Um, it's it's a really fair question. And here in Israel, we appreciate that there are still people out there that want to know what's going on and, and what we're going through. I am, um, gosh, when you say it like that, 77 days, I don't know, all like all 77 of them sort of flash before my eyes or something. It's been it's been a long 77 days. What does it feel like now? Um, I would say, and obviously in my way, I will continue to make gross generalizations and speak on behalf of all of Israeli society. Obviously, there are people who would disagree and see it otherwise, but that's okay. It's not their podcast. But you do it. But you do it nicely. <laughs> Thank you. I am. I would characterize it like this: at the two and a half plus months mark, psychologically, most of us sort of have the sense that by now, even though it is still an ongoing war, we are supposed to somehow have found a way to return to routine. And in many ways, we have. Schools are open, people are working, businesses are open, public transportation is running. And yet, every day, there are multiple moments of the day where something drags you back, if not all the way to October 7th, then to somewhere along the way, um, and to a place of, of not being able to continue with routine and normalcy. Right. When we hear about another soldier killed or another or the hostages killed, as you mentioned, or another story that we hadn't heard before of one of the people who are still hostages or some detail of the atrocities that happened on October 7th that we didn't know previously. Right. All of these things just make you feel like you're pulled back, stuck in that day of October 7th, you know, over and over again in a way that is somewhat debilitating, right? It is um, it is really hard to keep doing that constant work of telling oneself you can put one foot in front of the other and you can get through another day because you're okay and things are basically okay, but then you're reminded of all the things that are not okay. I am. It's it's a mix, right? You hear of 
a soldier who has been away from home for 60 days and now has finally gotten to come home and will probably be home for a couple weeks because the the um, Israeli military is trying to really make a shift of people who have mostly been in for most of this period to get them home for an extended stretch because they know that mentally it's not healthy for them or their families, right? Nobody can be away unexpectedly for that long, someone that's not a professional military person, right? They're, they weren't in the army three months ago. They were a reservist that occasionally got called to go for a week and see their friends and do some, you know, shooting practice. And all of a sudden to be a full-time soldier, uh, there, there are limits to how long people can do that and still remain mentally healthy. So they're trying. So you hear about people coming back, other people being called up. Um, I don't know how articulate of an answer that was, but that's some of the things that we're feeling. So I, I, I think that's a good uh, answer. I think the other part of it is, you know, using numbers like day 77, which I, I might be off by a day. It might be day 76. So if anybody's listening to this um, on today, it could be day 76 or day 77. But the f- point is, and you made it two and a half months that this war has gone on much longer than most wars that Israel has had to deal with. And I think that the average person isn't used to a prolonged military action that is dramatically impacting the the emotions of the country and of the greater world. We see the, the images coming out of Gaza in Western media that are pretty significant. And that's what, right now, what I think the West and Europe are experiencing. They're not seeing, you know, Israel struggling with this conflict. They're seeing the um, images coming out of of Gaza. I don't know if if that is also true in Israel. So in Israel, that is not the case. It is not a question of censorship. It's not that it's illegal or, you know, that news outlets are not allowed to show those images, but there is a conscious decision that um that those that there isn't that it is not good for Israel as a country for those images to be the ones that dominate the news, I guess, right? While we are still in um, the midst of a war and we need to have morale in the country be in a certain place so that people will keep showing up, will continue supporting the soldiers, will do all of the things they need to do back at home to fill in for others who are away, right? Um, in order to keep that morale, there there is a limit to how much of those scenes are going to be shown on mainstream media here. It's not because anybody's saying that it isn't happening. It's not because anybody in Israel is trying to deny the tremendous amount of suffering that's taking place in in Gaza. Um, But most of us are able to remember that we didn't start this war and we are and trust that our that our government, whatever other issues we might have with it and our military are um, conducting this war in a way that does not create more suffering than they have to in order to achieve their military goals. Um, and and while holding those things, it doesn't do us, you know, any good to 
to be overly bombarded with images of of what that means in in Gaza. We understand that it's that it's a tremendous amount of destruction and suffering. One of the critiques that I often get when I do conversations around uh, Israel and updating people on what I know about what's going on, a common comment that many people make is, why does Israel have such a bad PR message about this war and what's going on? Um, I don't expect you to answer that, but you just kind of described that internally there's a there's a process that's taking place to message what's going on in this in this war, uh, but externally Israel is having difficulty explaining its own right to your point to survive uh, after they were attacked by Hamas. The story of Hamas is not getting out there in America and in, in greater world. Nobody's really talking about the millions and maybe billions of dollars that Hamas has taken from its people through humanitarian aid and built this infrastructure that rivals, I, I think, any subway system uh, in a third world country. I mean, it's remarkable what we're learning from the the tunnel system that has been created or the advancement of technology and weaponry that Hamas is using against Israel. Even today, there's still rockets flying from Gaza into Israel. You know, and it's just, it's mind boggling that internationally, Israel is having difficulty telling that story. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And I, I mean, and it's not just Israel that needs to be or should be telling that story, right? Israel is a small country, again, busy at war. Um, but international journalists, for example, I think are aware of both types of stories, right? It is not a secret that uh, weapons have over and over again been found stored in hospitals in Gaza, that terrorist tunnels lead to hidden places underneath cribs of babies, right? There, None of this is a secret. It is all out there. Why one type of story gets picked up and shared over and over again, and the other is less appealing or less widely shared, I don't know. I don't know why one seems newsworthy and the other people are quick to dismiss. I think what you just said is part of the challenge. I go back to the the numbers of casualties coming out of, of Gaza in that they're being reported by the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas. So nobody's fact-checking that information, but that's what's being communicated in Western media, more so than what other factual stories are being told out of Israel. Um, and many many in the media are skeptical of, of Israel's um, numbers, and they grill Israel, they, they question Israel, but they're not questioning Hamas. And I think mm -hmm. part of that is Israel is available to journalists, where Hamas is, you know, a terrorist organization that buries itself in tunnels and doesn't publicly speak about their um, their resources or their strategic efforts to destroy their own people. That's editorial comment from me. <laughs> I am on a related matter, but sort of. Looking at it from the other perspective, I know that all of these things, and you sort of alluded to it when you asked about the media, 
all everything that happens in Israel has ripple effects in the rest of the Jewish world and in the American Jewish community specifically. Um, what what does day seventy seven or seventy six, whatever it is, feel like uh, for you and your community? I mean, what is the what is the tone? So that's a a great a great question. Thank you for asking it. I think that part I think that part of what we're dealing with in you know the diaspora, whether it's in the United States or the UK or France, is that there is a significant voice against Israel that has been uh, developing over the years. We're seeing it uh, on college campuses historically. On college campuses, there have been several hearings in Congress questioning presidents of universities why they're not able to condemn uh, anti-Semitism on their campus, and they use the phrase, you know, free speech. Uh, in California, there are a half a dozen or so city councils that are being um, challenged to address the ceasefire in Israel. Uh, not not the ceasefire from Hamas, but focusing on, on Israel and not condemning the actions of Hamas. So we've taken, we see it here on a college campus, in city government, uh, and in the media that is being bombarded by a voice that opposes Israel uh, and, in a sense, is supporting the actions of Hamas. There are many statements that have been made in America by communities that are not condemning what Hamas did to Israel, but are condemning how Israel is, is uh, protecting its people by retaliating to in Gaza. Um, so every day I'm getting messages from people how city governments are are making foreign policy uh, decisions or mm -hmm. foreign policy um, resolutions. Because of the attention, in my opinion, it's because of the attention that the media is focusing more on on the civilians in Gaza than they are on the civilians of Israel. Mm -hmm. Look, it's fascinating, though. I mean, there have been, I don't know how many hundreds of international conflicts, right, over the years. There have been wars between countries in, in Africa and Southeast Asia, right, many, many times. And has a city council in, you know, suburban California ever taken upon itself to pass a resolution about one of those conflicts? I, I don't know. It's really interesting why this one does draw that kind of attention and so one-sidedly. It, it's it's not just California. The, the other municipalities around the country also are addressing sure. this. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it a little farther. It's I believe the UN has been unfairly treating Israel over the years. And when the UN comes out with a non-binding resolution calling for Israel to a ceasefire, but never called on Hamas to, uh, for Hamas to cease their fire on October the 7th or October the 8th, the UN did not come out at, at all uh, challenging Hamas's action. But, you know, they've, they've, um, been able to draft resolutions against Israel and get 153 nations to to agree to it, which brings up the point that you made. How is it that a country like Sudan or Syria or other countries in Africa that are in constant battles with its own people 
calling for a ceasefire in Israel, but not uh, having the UN call a ceasefire in those countries. There are border disputes all over the world, but the only border dispute that the UN really focuses on uh, is Israel. So that's a problem. The other, look, and it is tempting to say that it, the what lies behind all of that is anti-Semitism, but in some ways that also seems like too easy and too knee-jerk of an answer. I, you know, I wish I knew what the other piece of it was. I'm sure there's more to it. But something else that I find really interesting about this phenomenon is that I it's hard for me to understand what those that would call for a ceasefire, those that see Israel as an, you know, unnecessary aggressor or, you know, disproportionately defending itself what would they see as a practical resolution right what 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 will happen okay so so israel will lay down its arms we'll have a ceasefire and then what we'll give the palestinian people a patch of land and say you are totally independent do whatever you want with it oh we did that already it didn't work right but <laughs> what i mean what what do they envision will happen. The international community will send in millions and billions of dollars to help them and open UN-backed schools. Oh, they did that. It didn't work. So like, what? what is the plan? I don't understand what they think <laughs> so the I, day I, after the ceasefire could look like that's in a stable, sustainable way. So I, I, I think that your, your previous comments are so on target, and they're aligned with what I saw the other day a comedian and public commentator Bill Maher did on his last show of the year um, where he basically said to whoever is listening that you know the Palestinian people are the only refugees in history that continue to not get on with the plan of you know leaving refugeehood you know in, mm -hmm. in 75 years ago in 47 and 48 there was a two-state solution. Uh, wasn't accepted. Israel accepted it. The Arab countries decided to attack Israel. So part of it is the Arab world has tried to eliminate Israel, and in doing so, um, they've created a refugee system of Palestinians and have kept them to be refugees every year. And every time there's a conflict, there's more and more of a challenge with their refugee status. And yet you have the UN who, in my opinion, perpetuates their refugee status rather than advising them how to build a nation. And so when you see in 2007 Hamas becoming the government of Gaza and absorbing billions of dollars of aid, humanitarian aid, and investing those dollars not in public services, but in uh, weapons and tunnels and an infrastructure solely to attack Israel, uh, there, that's a challenge that the world is not seeing, and uh, we need to see. We need to use our resources to tell that story in a way that's heard. Yes, and you know what I said before was somewhat tongue in cheek, but in all seriousness, I think that absolutely we need to come up with a a, a better way to help the the Palestinian people who have suffered terribly have 
you know, not managed for a whole range of reasons to get out of this refugee status, refugee mindset, refugee situation, uh, and are as deserving as every other people on the planet of self-determination. But the first step to that is to get rid of Hamas, right? That has to be the first step. And then I, I sincerely hope that the international community will come up with a workable solution that, in fact, does improve the lives of the Palestinian people. I'm going to challenge you a little bit. It's not so much first getting rid of Hamas. It's first recognizing that in order to have their own success as a people, they need to stop dehumanizing and attacking Israel uh, because it, I believe that in the mantra of of um, from the river to the sea, it's not about having a neighbor. It's about eliminating the Jewish people in Israel. And so if you look at the 75 years of this situation, I don't believe that the Palestinian refugees have ever looked at the future other than a future of, a, of annihilating uh, Israel and the Jewish people. And so in my opinion, that's the first thing that they have to overcome and then build a nation, build a people. You know, look at Qatar, look at, you know, Saudi Arabia, look at Kuwait, look at Bahrain. These are countries that have evolved over the past, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years and have created a, a nation for themselves. The, the Palestinian people could have done the same thing. Uh, and some would say they already did in Jordan, um, but that's a political statement I don't want to really make at this point. But the reality is, and if you look at what Bill Maher said the other night, is the Palestinian people have to wake up and say, okay, we're no longer refugees protected by the UN and the International Red Cross. We're our own people, and we're going to establish a nation just like any other nation. And our first goal is not to uh, eliminate Israel, but to create an infrastructure of education, healthcare, and peace for our people. I, I agree with you. I think the main difference between what I said and what you're saying is who is the they? Because when I said, you know, what we need to do is get rid of Hamas and you, you're saying the first thing is for the pa Palestinian people to not want to have their number one goal be to destroy Israel. We don't really know how many of the Palestinian people feel that way, right? They're, some support Hamas because they 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 do believe that some support Hamas because it has Hamas has helped them financially or they don't really understand. It's hard to know. Um, I am. I don't want to cut you off, but I yeah. I don't disagree with you. But how how does a government elected by its people for sixteen years? create an infrastructure that doesn't help the people, but just helps their mission of destroying Israel. You know, why is there... Absolutely, but that government is Hamas. That right. government that you're referring to was Hamas. So, you know, what happens when we get rid of Hamas and who, what arises there? Is it the kind of leadership that you and I would like to see that prioritizes the very things that you mentioned, education, employment opportunities, building a, you know, a life for themselves or something else? remains to be seen. But yes, absolutely. The hope is that by getting rid of what has been a 
terrible deal for the Palestinian people and also happens to be a terrorist organization, right? That's step one. I am whether more needs to be done to to help increase the chances that the new thing that arises in its place is one that has those positive goals i i'm sure it does and um and we'll have to hope that the international community can can be really smart and think about how to help the palestinian people want that for themselves and realize that they, they can achieve that for themselves in through peaceful means well i i agree with every, everything you just said and this is time for me to state the disclaimer that we are not experts in in government building or political uh societies but we're just two people commenting on what we see and experience on a daily basis uh, and i'd like to be an expert on that but i don't i don't know if there's a category on that but uh you and i kind of share the the um the opportunity to address these things from our perspective and and we've done that pretty well but i i happen to to believe that you're absolutely right but it starts with the educational system and we know that the that the un based schools in gaza are not building an educational model to strengthen the palestinian people but to be a resistance to uh israel and the jewish people yeah we could, we could go on with this. I we've we've uh, really we tackled a difficult topic. I'm going to close with a a comment or a question to you. Have, have you seen okay. Have you seen Jerry Seinfeld walking the streets of uh, Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? I I have not seen him. I've heard there are several uh, celebrities, American celebrities, that have been here recently. I am I. Uh, I, I have not seen him in person. No. Well, I, I have not either. I, although I think that uh, I was very much taken aback when I started to see the publicity around these American um, celebrities making their way to Israel. Uh, and I, again, I think it's part of the the challenges of PR that Israel has. So invite uh, American celebrities to come and see what's going on and to tell those stories uh, when they get back. Um, so I, I hope there are more. Yeah, we, we we are an open book. We are the people of the book, and we are an open book. Anybody who wants to come and learn about all of the many complex factors that have led us to the situation that we're in and how this war is being conducted are very welcome to come and do so. Well, that is a perfect way for us to conclude our podcast today. That you've welcomed your home to anybody who wants to come and see. Sure, we can we can make that literal. Um, thank you all for listening. This has been Israel Rebound, a podcast um, bringing people from around the world to hear from two perspectives on on Israel. Uh, Liz, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, everyone.